ברוך השם, you're a bad Jew. שלום. You're listening to Bad Jew. With me today is Eyal Shai, all the way from Israel. Eyal, where, where are you calling from today in Israel? Well, I'm about an hour north of Tel Aviv in a rural, like, part of Israel. Okay. Um, but it's a small place, so Israel is good. You know, it basically covers the whole thing. Welcome to Virtual America. On this podcast, we do this very special challenge that is tradition for all the guests. It's a right of entry, you know. Kosha Dills did this, David Sachs did this, Saul Blinkoff did this, Aliza Klein did this. I'm going to have you do the same thing. It is the Bad Jew Challenge, where you are going to introduce yourself for four minutes and tell your entire life story. Do you think you're up for the challenge? I'll do my best. Do my All best. Right. All right. All right. So uh, my name is Eyal Shai. I was born in Israel. And I guess to put it in some context that's relevant to this show, interestingly enough, uh, all four of my grandparents were born into religious homes and all four of them left religion behind and made Aliyah as um, staunch Zionists to build uh, Kibbutzim in Israel. And so I was already born as a third generation to this kind of movement. And I was already, I already grew up in a, completely secular home in a kibbutz, so borderline anti-religion, right? Or at least very far away from religion. So I can't tell you exactly when was the first time I entered the synagogue, but it was probably not until my mid-teenage years, I imagine. Uh, my bar mitzvah was a talent show with the kibbutz. So I sang um, All Together Now by the Beatles to people <laughs> of the kibbutz. That was my uh, bar mitzvah. And other people did like comedy sketches and whatever. Uh, so this is kind of my uh, Jewish background or non-background. However, as time passed, I got more interested in just because I'm interested in tons of stuff and basically every field of study on earth. Um, so Judaism is no exception. I'm a licensed tour guide today. So as part of that, I had to study the theory behind Judaism and then, of course, visit every uh, important site in Israel. And these sites I keep uh, visiting on a regular basis today. So uh, with time, I actually probably got educated to a point where I know um, quite a bit on Judaism, if not as an observing Jew. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested in Israel as a whole and obviously in the interplay of religions, of spirituality, which is a big aspect of this land slash state slash country, however you want to call it. So it's, it's my great pleasure that I get to take people on tours who come here and really walk them through that. And my intention usually is to have them leave as confused as I am because I know many things, right? So if you know a few things, you might think you know everything that there is to know about Israel. When you actually arrive here and you get into the small details, you realize that it's kind of infinite and really 
nobody knows what the future holds for this uh, tumultuous place in terms of politics, religion, uh, demographic makeup, and and these things. So, um, yeah, are there any biographical aspects that didn't make it yet? Because I'm ahead of time. <laughs> awesome, hey, y'all. This was, uh, this was great. You had 45 seconds remaining on the clock. You did a great job on that. And I think, <laughs> you know, some of the things that I'm kind of hearing that I find really fascinating. The first one is that I like that you said that you are an observing Jew versus an observant Jew. An observant Jew is someone who would, you know, is <laughs> yeah. pretty much synonymous with being religious, right? But you're saying an observing Jew in the sense that you grew up not religious, completely secular. Your bar mitzvah was a talent show. And <laughs> I love that, by the way. And, <laughs> you know, what, what you're describing is the fact that from being able to teach about Israel, you naturally picked up a lot about Judaism in that time, from what I understand. That's correct so far, right? Yeah, I mean, just growing up here, you do have to take classes about about certain things. But I don't know how much sticks during uh, school, especially for me, because I didn't stick around in school too much. I was always more of an autodidactic person. But yeah, it's just with time, I guess I just want to know things about the place I live in. So for me, a lot of it is learning about plants too, like the land, the rocks, the everything. But obviously being surrounded by so much different views and religions, like that was just natural for me to, to delve into that. Of course. And like you, like you just pointed out, there's multiple religions in Israel. Does that mean you also know a lot about Islam? or Christianity, or even, you know, there's, there's a lot of religions out there. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of a jack of all trades. So you won't see me saying that I am an authority or any of these, because I know some amazing people who are really able to go into minute details of different religions and their sects. Uh, but I definitely know a lot more than just a layperson who just kind of uh, lives around this part of the world. So, um, yeah, in addition to Judaism, we have Islam, Christianity, and all its sects, or at least more than a handful. The Druze religion, Alawite, Baha'i, and uh, maybe even a few more minor ones. But, yeah, it's really interesting to to see all these. And in that in that sense, we're lucky to be in Israel and to have all of this around and meet people from these religions rather than just read about them. It's, it's, it's a beautiful mesh of multiple cultures within one Jewish state. It's the only place in the world like that. But we're not going to ask you today about Judaism. Um, this is actually more so about individual people's responses. Today's episode is on why do some Jews hate Israel? That's something that probably comes up in your profession a lot as a tour guide. And I want, I look forward to hearing why this comes up and hearing some insight on that and what some of the responses are that you have to certain issues that pop up. So, Al, why do some Jews hate Israel? Yeah, you know, well, I, I will say I have a, a philosophy podcast of all things, and uh, I'd love to actually have someone ever talk about hate on there, which it's an interesting concept. So even before we tackle the thing of why Jews hate Israel, like hate itself, I think, stems always from just a perception that something embodies the wrong values for you, and not just in a way that you don't approve of, but you you also it's probably has to do with fear 
too. For a lot of people, what they hate most, I think, is the kind of entity that embodies entity or person that embodies values that they disapprove of and they themselves might also be bunched in the thing right or bunched with the person yeah what do you mm-hmm. mean by that i'm not i don't understand by what do you mean by entity so so i mean i think that a lot of a lot of jews for example would be very wary that by being jewish people would have prejudice against them as seeing them as pro-Israel. Now, if they disapprove of many things they see in Israel, they might uh, react by being by overcompensating when it comes to like distancing themselves from Israel, right? Mm-hmm. And then the road from there to being very vocal about how things are shitty there is is kind of uh, very short, I think. Um, so that's hate in general, and yeah, I already got into the the specifics a little bit, but basically, I think it it also has to do with the fact that Israel is aside in a bloody conflict, and this is a messy kind of thing. I mean, and both sides here have blood on their hands, whether that's their intention or. You know, and nobody wants part of that. And I think, yeah, a lot of people would like to distance themselves from the the warring, from any of the warring sides or the warring side which they perceive to be more at fault or anything like that. So I think it's it's pretty much that, if that makes so, sense. Yeah, I think what's really fascinating about your answer is that you said both sides have blood on their hands, which means that both sides bear a certain amount of guilt for something that didn't go perfectly in like you said, a a messy conflict. It's true. The Israel-Palestine conflict, there's no straightforward timeline. You might be able to track specific events down. Well, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But even beyond the text, even beyond what's black and white on a piece of paper, there are nuances that aren't really described well that kind of get lost in translation. Why do you think that happens, Ayo? Yeah, first of all, it's... Yeah, it's it's just a fact, right? And I think that that will always happen when you have entities that are societies that are made up of individuals and these individuals are not actually, n- n- not one of them is actually uh, acting as a representative of the whole population. So yeah, I'll be the first to say that, and as I kind of said in the introduction, I like to have people over here and send them away with an understanding that their knowledge is incomplete, as as is mine. So I think it happens because, uh, well, to answer your question, I think this tendency to eventually always come up short when it comes to a, a, a wholesome understanding of something or missing leaving a lot of the details out is that there are there isn't almost literally infinite amount of details we as humans would like everything to be black and white that's easier for us and a lot of people don't make the effort to actually delve deep into matters and you do have to delve deep there are you know at this point probably thousands of books about about this conflict and people just operate the way they operate, which is, uh, I saw a Twitter thread on the thing, so that's that's it. 
I mean, in college, you know, I took a I took a course by an Israeli professor who was a very middle ground mindset, similar to yours. And mm -hmm. he described the Israel-Palestine conflict as best as he could, mm -hmm. but ended the class explaining that, listen, it's complicated. You know, he said that there's no such thing as an authority on the subject because no one fully understands the story. Do you think that's true? From what I understand, it's true. Like I had the privilege of being on the ground with people who have been part of the Shabak, like the Israeli intelligence forces who operate in the West Bank and Gaza, people from elite forces, uh, people from the intelligence branch of the army. I even took a private tour of just me and a traveler of mine alone with the person who was in charge of laying down the blueprint for the obstacle between Israel and the West Bank in, the Jeru in and around the Jerusalem area. These people, I noticed a tendency that the more knowledgeable a person is, the less certain they are about a, a possible future solution to the conflict here. Okay, That's fascinating. So normally when we get more information about a problem to get that needs fixing, we normally feel more confident about fixing the problem. We like, for example, right? Let's say my door broke and I had to fix the door. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go on YouTube and I'm going to subscribe to bad Jew. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to go look up how to fix that door, right? That's the first thing I would do. Uh, and then I would copy exactly what the contractor who made the video described and how to fix that door, right? But Israel is opposite, where it's so complicated that the more and more and more you learn about the conflict, the less confident people become about fixing solution. Right. So if we were to actually frame what happens when you learn about this subject here, it turns out that you're not, it's not that you know what the problem is and now you're researching the solution. It's you're researching the problem and then you realize how, how um, convoluted it is and how complicated it is. And then this is, this is really it, but it's, it's actually the solution yeah. that is um, in theory, in theory, not in any real way in theory is simple, which is you want people to get to know one another. You want to appreciate the humanity in individuals that are, um, on paper from the, from the other side, right. And then be surprised by how human they are and get to know them mm. in, in very human situations like a soccer match or whatever, right. Mm -hmm. Which is also part of the, but this adds to the problem. Like the trend has been one of actually disengaging in the last 20 years since the second intifada, maybe around that time, mm. if in the nineties, we were very, very close to a, a peace treaty, there was supposed to be a, 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 a sovereign Palestinian state in 1999, mm -hmm. the Oslo Accords set us on this path. Mm -hmm. And because of the work of some dedicated extremists that fell apart. And within a few years, uh, measures were taken that actually put more and more uh, buffers that allow for less and less interaction between humans, which is the simple, theoretically simple solution to this. So trust is, is at an all time low 
and we don't see it coming back. So the problem is just getting bigger, not smaller. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, speaking of trends, you know, I have some statistics I want to pull up. But before I even pull up those statistics, if you look at the current events happening in Israel right now, this has an impact right now on how we as a Jewish nation around the world are going to respond to that. So they're right now, for those who don't know, Netanyahu teamed up with an extremist party that was originally banned from the Knesset, which is the Israeli government, in order to regain power. So after having been, you know, beat from an election, he was able to get right back into power as prime minister. And right now there are incredible protests that are happening that are ending, unfortunately, very violently. And you have the Israeli government concerned about the future of their democracy, which makes it harder for us as non-Israeli Jews to defend Israel. You know, when someone who was supporting BDS, you know, boycott, mm -hmm. divestment, sanctions, when someone is speaking about, you know, free Palestine, when they say that nasty shit to you, and I'm just going to say it like that because that's what it is. It really does make it harder to defend Israel. And so right now our country as a government, not as the culture, not as the, you know, religious significance, but speaking specifically about the government itself is mudding the waters of what Israel is. And that's really, really difficult. So here are some statistics uh, that were taken last year. This is before Netanyahu regained his recent power. Um, just pulling this up here that this is how the U United States Jews feel. Um, you know, are we emotionally attached? And the answer is yes, we are. You know, 58% mm -hmm. say somewhat, 25% say very, you know, depending on also the sect of Judaism as well. So you have Orthodox Judaism say 80, 82% say yes, they're very 78% say of conservative Jews say that they are very attached to Israel. And 58% say that they are, 58% of reformed Jews say that they're connected. Mm -hmm. um, and and you, it's, it's one thing that's interesting as well is that it doesn't matter what the denomination, 58% of men and 58% 58% of women uh, believe that they're attached to Israel. It also shows differentiations in age as well, where, you know, the younger you are, you're kind of like not as attached but as you get older and older and older. By 65 years old, you're over 67 percent 67 percent of the people that are over 65 believe they're attached to israel so that speaks to the fact that it really is about building a relationship with the country that it takes time to build a relationship mm -hmm. i think that's really fascinating also shows breakdown of jewish people from high school age all the way to postgraduate degree also this next part's really fascinating when it comes to uh, american jews is your political beliefs if you're republican you're you're in the 72 percent of people that are attached to Israel. And if, if you're Democrat, you're 52% attached to, 52% of Democrats are attached to Israel. And this last part is the most key part. This is why birthright exists. This is an argument for birthright to exist, mm -hmm. is if you've never been to Israel, only 41% of those people believe in their attachment to Israel. But if you've been more than once to Israel, 90% of the people who have been more than once feel attached to the land of Israel. So that is incredibly fascinating. This next part Incredible. here from Pew, yeah, from Pew Research is that one in 10 U.S. Jews 
support the BDS movement, while 43% oppose it and 43% haven't heard much about it. So I think that's fascinating. A slim majority of U.S. Jews, including the 6 in 10 Jews by religion and 42% of Jews of no religion, say they have heard either some or a lot about the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Nearly 1 in 10 Orthodox Jews and 7 in 10 conservative Jews say they have heard at least something about the movement, as have 54% Reformed Jews. So I find that fascinating. It almost seems like the Orthodox Jews are detached from the movement, but then conservative Jews a little bit more, and then Reformed Jews are the most aware of that mm. movement, which is fascinating. And then that Jews, the highest levels of education are more likely than others to have heard something about BDS. Now, my personal opinion on that last part, that I think is really fascinating. I went to San Francisco State. Um, Ayal, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but part of the, the closest thing I have to a claim to fame is the fact that there is a lawsuit with my name on it um, called <laughs> Bulk versus CSU Board of Trustees. And I talk about it in the very first episode of my podcast and how it was my personal victory for anti-Semitism where I sued my college, San Francisco State, for systemic anti-Semitism, things that happen behind closed doors. There's a longer story to it that I can go into another time. But the bottom line is that you know, I personally experienced at least a version of BDS. It wasn't officially BDS. There is an organization for BDS. Mm -hmm. Our college campus did not have it at that time. And when I had experienced it, the one thing I was observing from people who were in, you know, the college campus square chanting with the general union of Palestinian students is that these were just regular organizations. You know, you have like the LGBTQA organization that was there. You had the young, I think it was the, the Union of African-American Students that was there. You had organizations that really had nothing to do with the General Union of Palestinian Students. And I think that speaks to two things. I think the first thing is that General Union of Palestinian Students and other organizations like that do a really good job at playing victim. Jews as well, by the way, are accused of playing victim all the time. We're told to get over it more and more and more, kind of referencing the Holocaust. And then we get we get told all the time, wow, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain and accuse Jews of becoming the new Nazis, which is beyond measure. It's, it's extreme. <laughs> if you looked at only one side, yeah, I too could believe in that. But that's where we're left, is that, again, the situation is too complicated. There's blood on both sides. It's so confusing. You can't possibly have pointed to one person and said they're Nazis. Mm. You know, there is no ethnic cleansing happening in Israel. Just not. No. The population no. of Palestinians has grown to over, is it 2 million or 2 billion now? It's 2 million. Yeah, it's about 20% uh, of the country. So it's 2 million and then yeah. pro probably over 3 million in the West Bank and then uh, about 3 million in, in Gaza, which is a very dense population. And you know, I have kind of a funny way of addressing the, the genocide claim, at least. If Israel is committing a genocide, it's by far the, the least competent country or nation to ever do so, right? Yeah. I mean, right. What, what, is the, what is the plan there? Usually you're supposed to show some sort of actions that go towards it and you don't yeah, basically, Israel sucks at genocide, right. even if even if that's <laughs> which it isn't. But so if, if anybody I, thinks, yeah, yeah. So I don't think either side has the ability to just wave a victim card and say I'm purely the victim here, right? 
No, so I it, mean it's 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 also lame, right? I mean, uh, I, as per the Arab League and um, and Palestinian leadership, there is a lot of a lot of uh, there's a serious issue with victimhood and basically you know a lot of the palestinian refugees from the war of 48 and here i'm gonna say the war of 48 okay so not gonna call it independence or the nakba or anything like that but there was a foreign for there was a war in 47 48 and palestinian refugees did live their homes i live in a kibbutz that lives um, that was founded in 1939 my kibbutz is called dalia and the arab village that it coexisted here for nine years until 48 was called Dalia del Carmel. So you can even see the kind of respect that the kibbutzniks paid to this village by not going and picking any name, but taking the name of an already existing village. And coexistence with them was at times tense and was at other times very good with exchanges of visits and so on. I was going to say that a lot of Palestinian refugees who ended up beyond the borders of what is now uh, Palestine and Israel, let's say in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, a lot of them have not gained uh, local citizenship in the new countries they ended up with because the official position is the Jews are going to fix it, not this other country. Now, this is a very interesting to note that, you know, according to the Arab League and the kind of academic work on what it means to be an Arab. Uh, we have the idea of Al-Ummah, right? Which is this big Arab nation without borders of all the Arabs. And uh, it's it's also worth mentioning what who is an Arab according to the Arab League. Um, an Arab is somebody whose native tongue or is is standard Arabic. Right, So obviously we can't expect a Moroccan to understand an Iraqi when they talk to one another, but they both um, listen to the news that uses modern Arabic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also says that this person has to be sympathetic with the goals of the, of the, of the Arab nations. Okay? So this leaves in Christians and Muslims, but definitely makes sure that no Jews fit the bill, right? Because oh, if if there are Moroccan Jews, you know, what why are they not Arabs? They're they grew up on hearing that language and and whatnot. So there's there's a definitely a strong tendency from the early days of blaming the Jewish enterprise of, of Zionism for problems. And, you know, I like to contrast it with the Jewish attitude towards Jews who have just come from either Europe post-World War II or North Africa, when uh, when these countries actually banished Jew by law, you know, in the, the 19, late 1940s and early 1950s. Well, the, the country of Israel immediately gave them uh, citizenship and housed them and the population of the country more than doubled itself. And this meant that the young country of Israel had to enact austerity measures in the beginning. Okay? Now we see Israel as this really rich country and all that. This was not the case. And it actually took on a huge challenge of inviting all these Jews over and making them citizens, despite the fact that the people who were already here 
um, had to go on austerity measures and have rations of bread allocated to them, right? So this is yeah, like basically so, a third world country at this point when Israel was founded. That's what you're saying. The advantage that Israel and the would-be Israel, like up to 48, enjoyed is that these people did come from Europe with with a very high education. So the people were very educated. So in that sense, it was never a third world country because the education here was not third world um, education. This is also, I think, when Jews and Arabs, and again, this this is Muslim plus Christian, okay? So some people think this is a long religious divide. No, Muslims and Christians are together in this as, as Arabs, as Palestinians. In the beginning, the, the Jews don't have a lot more than the locals, but over time from the early 1900s and so on leading up to 48, you have the Jewish side forming institutions that would immediately become ministries as soon as there's a country, right? Well, the Arab way of life here um, was just very kind of decentralized, um, poor farmers living wherever with just a few educated people probably living in Jerusalem, Jaffa, and Nazareth, places like this. But And that made the difference also because at the start of the War of Independence, there are twice as many Arabs here, but um, plus add the the four plus armies that invade uh, day old Israel, uh, but they lose eventually because um, the Jews were very organized from the beginning and knew what they wanted and they knew how to get it. So they formed a would be army, they formed a would be finance ministry, they formed everything, a would be government, everything. Yeah, it's inspirational when you think about it from that perspective. From the other perspective, the the losing side in this case the war of 48 which i'm by the way i'm not quite sure why it wouldn't be the war of independence or the nakba may i ask why you didn't go with those terminologies yeah so um nakba literally means disaster that's how that's what the um palestinians that's, call call right. this war because mm -hmm. it was a disaster uh, mm -hmm. a lot of refugees israel is actually has expanded its borders in comparison with the UN proposal, which would have given it a lot less land. That's so right. it's a disaster. And then for Israel, it's the war of independence for obvious reasons. There comes uh, at the end of it, there's a, an independent Israel that would go on to live to, to this day, despite some of its neighbors trying to destroy it in, um, in the coming years. But I'm saying 48 because... Um, this is a fact. There was a war, and um, I don't like to step on the kind of minds that people like to lay on you and just have a big long discussion about. Oh, why are you calling this? You 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 can call this right. So right. it's like sometimes you just want to say bovid instead of cow, right? And it's still correct <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. to keep the discussion focused sure. on what you want to focus on. Well, I really I really do respect that. Um, I think that that's. I think that that's a, a nice, you know, middle ground way of looking at it. You know, this is, you know, one thing I want to point out to our listeners is that Eyal, as a tour guide, knows far more than what he has introduced on the show. And for the same, <laughs> no, 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 it's it's true because on your, on your tours, you go in depth about all the different locations that you that you take your people to, that you take your clients to, you're, you're caring for them, and you're introducing them to these new concepts and. You help them leave realizing that 
they're still a student that you're very much a student too. And you're just giving them a piece of your book report that you've been doing all these years, right? Metaphorically speaking. So with that idea in mind, you have, you are in this place where you're you're helping us understand that it's not necessary. You can't, to, to subscribe to the war of independence is to completely side with one side. To subscribe to the Nakba is to subscribe to the other side. And so the more you learn, the more you realize that the only factual thing that we can point to is this middle ground of, yes, there was a war in 48 and these things happened. These events took place without getting emotionally, politically attached. The only thing we can do is relate to the intellectual attachment in this situation because A, it's the past. B, we can't change the past. And C, it's the only thing that is concrete in facts. And that's really what makes the wars and the conflicts and the constant game of cat and mouse, this very violent, bloody game of cat and mouse take place. One last thing I want to pull up here as well is that, you know, no subgroups of U.S. Jews express more support for BDS and opposition to it. But the ratio of opposition to support for the BDS movement is much more lopsided amongst Jewish Republicans. 58% 58% opposed versus 3% supportive than among Jewish Democrats, 39% opposed, 13% support. It is also greater among Jews age 65 and older, 55, 52% opposed versus 7%, 7% supportive than among Jews 18 to 29, 34% opposed versus 13% supportive. I bring up that quote now to remind people that no matter what political side you are here in America, Israel is different because this is a relationship that if you really if you really want to learn about the confusing relationship between Israel and Palestine, you have to understand that you have to go about it the way you would a relationship. And I'm sure right now you could think in your head to someone in your life that you have a very complicated relationship with. If you feel the need as a young American to stand behind a movement, to go all rah, rah, rah on this one subject, right? You need to look at both sides of it and approach it like a relationship. If you approach it like a relationship, you too will be able to realize that no one here is an authority. We're all students learning about it. We're all trying to figure it out. And we're all trying to embrace this amazing, beautiful side to us that happens to have geography attached to it. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to add, Ayal? Yeah, I want to I want to say before we part ways talk about the fact that I like diversity and you mentioned the the political turmoil that's going here now. It's actually very good. Some people look at it like um Hassan Nasrallah, the um the chief secretary of of Hezbollah or something. He's saying that oh, here's Israel societies falling apart or something like that. This is, can't be farther from the truth. The truth is that the moment we have a prime minister and a few other uh, with his unholy alliance with people he does not like, okay? If people think Bibi likes any of his political partners, he does not. But he wants to stay out of jail. And he has his uh, finance minister, Derry, who wants to stay out of jail. And what happened here is that Israelis recognize that right now laws are passed that have nothing to do with them. They are personal laws. Okay, and immediately we didn't wait two, three years to take out to the streets. This was immediately recognized. 
and protested against. And I also want to tie to the BDS thing because I think that some people with um, with truly care about Israel and they though you and I might think that they're misguided they think that the best way to treat um, Israel is with this kind of treatment of boycott divest and sanction um, okay it's good to have a diversity of opinions okay and free speech is always going to be good and it's good that these people get to um, get to talk this is good Israel for example uh, for large part, and you know, uh, there's so much we haven't discussed, and I'm gonna finish with something. But I wanted to end <laughs> on the note that one thing that's when it comes to this relationship is that the biggest, most elaborate, and most successful kind of political flip flopping ever is the the European superpowers actually getting away with all the shit that they did, you know? And if you look at here, it's like something we can, I think, if we look at the facts, all agree on, is that if we actually want to play the victim, we are the victims of, of the Brits and the French. But ultimately, it, it's not about that, right? And we could find common ground there. But I think the message I want to send um, listeners away with is that we need to be forward-looking. That's it. It's like the past. It's the past. Sane people who look for the humanity in other people should be forward-looking, and they, they should be very, very vocal about their um, unwillingness to kind of wade forever in this bog of like who did what first, because this literally goes thousands of years um, back and that's not where you're going to find the, the solutions. And I'm going to make a bold claim that uh, within 20 years, this, um, this uh, conflict will in fact be over. You think in 20 years, the Israel-Palestine conflict, which has been around... Yeah, I think as old as even before Israel's existence, I think it's, it's be I over think it's, twenty years. I think it's very probable. You know, I'm giving you twenty years because in twenty years nobody's going to look this podcast up. But <laughs> um, it's very possible. Let's let's see what happens after the ground is is ready is made ready for um, a formal peace agreement with Saudi Arabia. Let's see because the Arab League will then that won't have really a reason for its existence without the Palestinian problem if most superpowers, Arab superpowers around us recognize Israel formally, as do Jordan and Egypt already, and Bahrain, and uh, UAE, and Morocco, and Sudan. When the rest of them join, the Palestinians are actually, I kind of feel bad for them, but they're going to feel like they've been uh, played as pawns by other more powerful people, which is true. Uh, but after that, there's there's going to follow. They're going to follow um, all sorts of um, guarantees in place that guarantee the safety of Israel, and this might allow Israel to formally withdraw from the West Bank um, and uh, reserve the right, obviously, to to retaliate should anything happens but it could resolve the um the sovereignty issue which is the heart of this the the fact that israel occupies these territories and it's no man's land and that's problematic both for israelis and definitely for palestinians there wow wow well i think you've given all of us something to think about when it comes to this yeah. i think it's hopefully it, 
you made a bold claim, but I, I want that to happen. I want there to be peace. And if the price is 20 years, I would take it in a heartbeat. And, you know, I do know that the Arab nations around Israel are becoming more and more, you know, they are building deeper relationships. In fact, that college professor I mentioned that, you know, taught the Israel-Palestine conflict, part of the final that we took in this class was to kind of do a mock trial where we all had to act as the ambassadors for certain countries and respond the way that they, that those countries would respond to certain scenarios. That was a very fascinating practice. My, my group was like, um, were, was responsible for Jordan and our teacher kind of helped explain Jordan's position on it. But then you have mm -hmm. other surrounding countries like Egypt, you had people who represented the West bank there. You had people who represented, you know, Israel and you had people who represented all the countries around Syria around there. Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, even more, you know, so it was a really fascinating conversation. It all ties together in this really amazing way. So all, I want to thank you for being on this podcast. Should someone want to reach out to you and connect with you, continue this argument, continue debating with you, what's the best way they can reach out? Yeah, so um, I have my uh, Substack, which is uh, my name, ayalshai.substack.com. And on there, you can find my podcast, which deals with completely different things um, and looks for the humanity, really just a humanistic kind of philosophical podcast, but really keeps things grounded. And so it's actually talking with people about ideas that help them live well. Uh, I occasionally write on there. And then, of course, um, yeah, you have my email running here at the bottom of the screen. So that's if you want to come to Israel, say hi. Um, be guided, then uh, you're more than welcome to. Awesome. All that information will be displayed in the show notes of this episode. Hey, y'all, thank you for being on this podcast. You're awesome. I really love your, 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 your very humble way of looking at the conflict, and I can't wait to learn more from you as time goes on. Thank you, Ayol. Thank you. Thank you, Chaz. Thank you. Shalom. Shalom.